How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Nice. Really nice. So, so are you inspired tonight, Mark? Very much so. I am so inspired. We have, well, let's just get right to it. Because we, we it. have our in-studio guests. Uh, we have Jim Wahlberg, who's here. Thank you so much for being here. We just saw, if only, this mind-blowing film. Amazing. About production. adolescent substance use and the impact it has. I'm, I'm still feeling really very moved and very choked up by it. Really, really well done. Yes. I mean, I haven't even let it kind of digest yet because yeah. we literally ran from the production to the car to yeah. the studio, yeah. and now we have the producer sitting right next to us to talk to yeah. us about it. I'm very excited. So welcome, Jim. We also have Tony is here. Tony, do you want to say your last name? <coughs> yeah, last name is La Greca. Okay. And, and I was, that's where I met Jim is I was one of the parents that was in the original movie, If Only. Yeah. And you would have seen my picture at the end holding my son's picture. Yeah. It's and, just uh, so powerful. And I've seen the movie at least 30 times, mm. if not more. And it still gets me every time I every see time. it. Yeah, every time. Yeah, there's no... I know half the people that are in the holding the pictures. I know all the parents. And um, <clears throat> we actually grieve together in different groups, team sharing and Brockton Grasp and um, Place in Kingston, uh, uh, Hope Floats. Yeah. Where the parents get together and discuss, you know, what it's like to deal with it. Yeah. So, Jim, welcome. For our listening audience and our viewing audience, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself but also about this film, if only? Is this live? You bet it is. <laughs> right. You I'm are very, live. I'm very nervous. Yeah? <laughs> no. You don't look nervous. You look uh, great. Well, first of all, let me just say thank you guys for, uh, for, for having me and thank you for taking the time to come over and see the film um yeah i mean you know we uh i'm a person in long-term recovery you know and so uh this epidemic was sort of happening all around me and you know i continued to hear about so-and-so lost their kids so-and-so lost their kids so and it, it just uh it got to a point where you know i had to do something and i didn't really know what to do Right, I could do what I do in my personal life, which, which is to try to carry a message of hope. Uh, but I needed—I felt like I needed to do something tangible. I needed to make some sort of a contribution to, at the very least, a conversation. And so that's how, if only, came to be. My uh, my writing partner Mike Yeber and I got together and we wrote the script over a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. You know, because we were very familiar with the subject matter, very familiar with. Um, sort of the people, all the people in the film represent actual people for us. Yeah. Um, and so we wrote, the, we wrote the script and I brought it to one person. I brought it to a guy, uh, Howard Appel. He was at the time the CEO of a, uh, a, a urine 
testing company, I guess. It's probably not the technical term for it, but that's the business they were in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I asked them, I said, I need some money. I want to make this film. I want to tell the story. And I gave them the script. And what I did as sort of a marketing person that I am, I, I did some, some uh, brand integration into the script. I put their name mm. in the story. In the story, mom takes her son to get a physical, and she asked the doctor to drug test him. Something's going on with my son. I don't know what it is, but he's acting very different. And in the original script, the doctor says, absolutely. When he calls to give her the results, she says, are you sure? And he would say, you know, we use the best lab in the country, blah, 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 right? right? right. And the guy said, (laughs) he said, I'll give you the money to make the movie if you do me one favor. And I said, what's that? He said, well, you take our name out of the script. Wow. He said, that's not important. What's important is is that we need to have this conversation. And we, you know, we feel like you would be a good person to start the conversation. And so... um, we said about, you know, we totally guessed on what we thought it would cost. And, uh, of course, we went over budget, which is, you know, everybody does. Mm. And, um, you know, we came to Massachusetts, which for me was a very special opportunity. You know, it was, it was special for me to be able to come here and to do this, to tell this story with people that, um, that didn't need a translator when I spoke. And this is yeah. home for you. Yeah, this right? is home. This right. is home. This is home. And so, um, you know, we were blessed to be able to shoot almost the entire thing in Tewksbury, uh, a great town with great people who really rallied around us and rallied around the importance of the subject matter, right? Because, and, you know, at five years ago, this thing was still on a, on a it was really just starting to get going. That's like, right. At, at an outrageous level. And there were there were no communities left that hadn't been affected. You know, if I was five years earlier, I probably wouldn't have been able to find a place to shoot that movie, hmm. right? But now, at that point, there were no communities that were unaffected. Everybody knew somebody, and um, they opened the, their doors to us, and uh, and I mean, really, like, gave us their time, their treasures, and their talents. They gave them to us. You know, they gave us the school, the custodians. I'm not sure if I still owe the money, but they never, <coughs> asked, they never asked for the money, right? They said, well, you got to pay the, you, the only people you got to pay is the custodians. They're in the union. They got to get paid, and you're working on the weekends, and they're going to pay them overtime. And, uh, I mean, I don't remember the two custodians' names, but if they walked in here right now, I would absolutely know them, and it's been five years because they were so kind, Yeah. right? They were just like, they were, they were watching. They were... You know, they were involved in what was going on, and if we needed anything, they were on it. And um, I like to think that—I I like to think I didn't cheat anybody out of any money. I like to think that they decided that that one was going to be their contribution. Right. You know, and uh, a lot of people gave a lot of their time. And uh, my dear, dear friend Mark Ginsburg from Tewksbury um, is a guy that, you know, he's a— He's a very successful business guy, um, but you would never know it. Man, oh, he's a super humble, generous, kind, quiet guy who just knows everybody in town. And he was the guy. He started talking to people and asking people. And he got us the church. He got us the priest. He got us the school. He got us the doctor's office. I mean, he just he, he fed everybody for free. Hmm. Right? He, has, he owns a country club, little, small, nine-hole course, public course. And he, he, he made all the meals every day and gave them to us. 
uh, and he doesn't have a family member that was lost to this. He doesn't have a family that member that's addicted, right? But um, but he's he takes being a member of a community very serious. It's real for him, right? We all everybody talks about being part of a community. This guy takes it for real, mm-hmm. right? And he's constantly giving to his community. And um, I mean, without him, I don't I don't know where we would have went. Uh, but he uh, he got all those doors open to us. And then, you know, I tell the story at the screening tonight that, um, you know, we said, okay, now we'll show the movie. We made a movie. We got to show it to somebody, right? So let's see what happens. We'll we'll make an announcement. We're going to show. We got to go back to Tewksbury, right? Because they did all these great things for us. We went right back to the school, and they have a huge auditorium with, I don't know, it fits a couple thousand people, two thousand people. And uh, and the night came, and more people, and more people, and more people, and more people kept coming. And, you know, what happens is you think you know, right? Like, I thought I knew when Louise Griffin said, you know, 500 families want to show up and and be part of this film uh, because they had a loss. Um, And I thought I knew. And then, you know, we go and you think, oh, a couple people will show up, the people that are in the movie. We'll get a couple hundred people. It won't look so bad, right? We'll keep them down the front. We won't let them do it like they do it at church. Everybody sits away from each other. We'll get them down the front, and it'll look fine. And uh, there wasn't an empty seat. Wow. It wasn't an empty seat. And uh, it really, it really, like, each thing that happened was so meaningful to me because it just spoke to the magnitude of the problem. Right. It just continued to make it clear. I thought I knew, but I really didn't know. But not just the magnitude, but the people are now more willing to actually talk about yeah. it. Because for so long, this was all in the shadows. Nobody wanted mm. to talk about this. People denied it. You know, there's an old saying in psychiatry, denial is not just a river in Egypt. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I mean, and yet now, with with people like you, with other people saying, we're gonna we're gonna do something. Look how many people are willing to come forward mm. to help. It's time. Well, I you know probably you know aside from like my children and you know a few other people, uh, this film is is one of the things I'm most proud of. Not mm. the actual film itself, right? right. The movie, right. But the fact that these families came out and found each other, I'm telling you, 250 individuals walked into that church. Tumbling. And a family walked out of there. Amazing. Like, they, they came together yeah. in a way that was powerful. Yes. And, you know, I talk a lot about Louise Griffin and her son was Zachary. He was 21 years old when he passed. Um, and her inviting these people and this network. But somehow... The local newspaper found out about what we were doing. And when I say somehow, I, I don't know. I, I, I attribute it all to God. That's my thing, right? Mm-hmm. The local newspaper found out what we were doing. They got a copy of Louise's email inviting people, and they printed it in the newspaper. And quite a few of the people that came were not people that were connected through any kind of uh, resources or anything with Louise. There were people that read about it in the newspaper mm-hmm. and felt like they had to be there mm-hmm. because they needed to be around people that knew what they were feeling, 
right? Because, um, you know, the loneliness and the despair, right? I, you can only imagine, right? Um, and they came, and there were people there. So we shot that funeral scene. It was January 25th. So it was exactly one month after Christmas. There was, uh, <clears throat> there was a woman there who came downstairs on Christmas morning to find her son overdosed. <sighs> and then there was another guy there that came down to find his daughter just a week before. So literally, his daughter dies. Two days later, he sees it in the newspaper. And he said to me, I just, I don't know why, but I knew I needed to be here. I needed to be around people <coughs> that knew what I was talking about, that, you know, that, that had a sort of an understanding, <coughs> excuse me, of, of what I'm going through. Yeah. When, when you have that feeling, which I've had, um, you want to be with other people, other people that you can communicate. The most important thing about grief is action. And you want to do something and be part of something to get the message out immediately. And that's what I found. <coughs> to give you a little more footnote, um, I found out about the movie between from the mayor of Brockton because I was running one of his grasp meetings, which is called the Grief Response After a Substance Passing. So we had a pretty good-sized group. Was that we, Bill Carpenter? Yes, it was. Oh, yeah, he was terrific. Was, he was a great he, man. Yeah, Miss Bill, Bill worked with us endlessly. We did vigils. He put it together. He did organized it. And there was a woman there who did a lot of Mrs. Sandoval, did most of the work with him. But we were a caravan in a blizzard driving from Brockton to Tewksbury hmm. on the worst weather day of the year up until that point, mm -hmm. you know. We didn't even have a winter until that day, you know. And then... Two and a half feet. Yeah. And we were up there. And those big snowflakes, that's not digital recover. That's real snowflakes, you know. No, it's just, it was such a powerful scene. The whole movie was, you know, it moved and it, it, there was the arc to it, you know, starting here and talking with the mom, you know, it's, it's, it was powerful. W w did you choose the name Isaac for a reason? I mean, Isaac from the, from the Bible was, was going to be sacrificed mm -hmm. by his father Abraham. Yeah, yeah, I know the story well. Yeah, um, it's just powerful. It, you know, I love to, I don't believe in coincidence. Yeah. I can tell you that. <coughs> I am yeah. a strong believer in, in God incidents. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in my in my co-writer who, you know, so how we work together is I tell him a story, mm -hmm. right? I give him the broad strokes. This is going to happen. This has got to happen. This has got to happen. And then he's the creative guy that brings it all to life, you know? And he's just another guy like me with... You know, he's got no education. He's a street guy, a knock-around guy, who's a guy in recovery himself. And um, he just writes the way uh, the way real people express themselves. He, has a, he just has a, a way about him. And so quite possibly that could have been going on in his, in his right. psyche or it could have been, you know, planted there by... That's right. And there's there's this scene that we were just talking about the, the funeral scene and and real snow and and all these people and Tony you wanted to to mention yeah. something because you were there too right? right yeah we we I mean in my case it was less than eight months where I'd been my own son's funeral mm. and some of those as Jim mentioned there a lot of people 
well, hadn't even had the funeral yet. It was only two or three days. But we had to do about six takes for that scene. And the priest couldn't quite get it right all the different times. But we kept, but to see the coffin come in and go out and come in and go out was the most heart-wrenching thing because mm. everybody that was in there, brought it brought back very vivid recent memories. And that was, that was the toughest thing that I, one of the toughest things I ever did. Yeah. It was hard to watch on film. It much was. Much be present for that. And then, and then Jim, when you were doing the intro uh, to the film, you, you said that that was a, was a pivotal moment for you as well. Well, it was, um, you know, as I said earlier tonight, and I've said pretty much every time I've shown the film, you know, the thing is, somebody, we go, we write this script, somebody gives us the money to make the movie, right? And you go and hire all these people, they're your team, to make the film. And, you know, in my role as the producer, I'm sort of in charge of all those people and worrying about these people and their money. And I, I truly kind of lost sight of what we were doing in that moment. You know, it was a lot of moving parts. And um, when, they, when they started to bring that coffin down... Uh, it became it became painfully real again. Mm. There was no distractions anymore. There was no um, sort of worrying about the it, the words came out of my mouth. I don't I don't care how long this takes. Now, now, what do we do? do what do we do? Do we hug? Do we talk? Do we like tell me somebody tell me what to do? Because mm. I honestly didn't know what to do. And um, <clears throat> you know we've traveled with many of the people that were in that room in that church that day we've traveled around the country we did an opioid youth summit in manchester new hampshire we had ten thousand kids mm -hmm. and the the parents from massachusetts came and then we went to did you come to us to, with the yeah, we, we were at the songa center too yeah did you come to the i DEA went to both, both so we um we were asked by the dea to come to dc to their headquarters to show the film and they have a, a theater inside their building, and we showed the film to about a thousand employees, agents, secretaries, every job, every position. Um, but they also streamed it live to all the field offices around the world. Wow! And um, we brought, I think, about fifty parents from Massachusetts. And my friend will get very upset, but my friend Mark Ginsburg, I talked, I talked to him about it, and he was like, okay. Um, what what can we do? What can, how can we get them all there? They should all be there. How do we make it work? He bought everybody a flight. Yeah, yeah he bought everybody a flight. And um, they came, we, we went, and the thing about law enforcement, I had a lot to say about law enforcement tonight, as I do on most occasions, um, because I'm just in awe of their willingness to look at this thing in a different way just a completely different way, right? Because their job is to arrest people and lock them up if you're breaking the law, right? And now this thing has touched so many people in such a deep, sad way, right? That they've been able to just look at it as like, this could be my family next week instead of we gotta lock these people right. up. Right. And, and, and this really, I think, is part of the, the change. I'm, I'm not exactly sure why the change is happening, but it's happening. You know, one of my phrases is, you know, addiction is not about morality, it's about mortality. Mm -hmm. It's just the way the brain works. And being able not to medicalize it, because we, we, don't, want to, we don't want to create this, 
model where there's a disorder. I don't, I don't like the word disorder at all. I don't use disorder. You know, because disorder means you've got one group that's ordered and one group <coughs> that isn't, and then we're astonished that we have stigma. Right. So you've been doing this. What do you think it is? Why is there this movement now? Is it because people are... Why, do you think, why now? Why is it happening? I want to speak to that, Tony, first, if you don't mind, just because I want to say something. I want to say that um, this is different than just a bunch of people that are, are addicts, right? And I don't even know what the, what the politically correct term is. I'm not much of a politically correct guy, right? Um, <clears throat> people, young people, old people, senior citizens, people who have never exhibited any kind of addictive nature whatsoever in any way were turned into full-blown addicts in a very short time yeah. by these pharmaceutical companies, yeah. right? They changed the game and they changed the face of addiction, okay? They conspired against us mm. to fill their pockets with money, right? So this is a very different thing, you know? That a lot of these young people, like, I got started when I was a kid, man. I had my first drink when I was eight. I was hanging in the street, yeah. homeless at 12. Right? I was out there, right? I was out, and so it wasn't like hard to see what was happening with me or where I was headed, right? But we're talking about young people that had no right. they get great young kids, young smart, athletes, beautiful, or, or getting a tooth pulled. Yeah, exactly. So, so do you, do you got, I'm I'm going to get to you in a moment, but do you know the numbers from 2007? CDC put out the numbers, and, and this is the thing that where maybe it started. They took all the prescription pain medicine, right, and converted it to Vicodin. So yeah. all the Percocet and Oxy and everything said, okay, we're going to call them Vicodin equivalents. Enough Vicodin was prescribed in the United States in 2007 so that every single one of the more than 300 million people could have five milligrams of Vicodin every four hours for three mm. weeks. Every four hours for three weeks. And one way, another way to look at it, Vicodin is about seven millimeters long. You take Vicodin and you stack them end to end. That amount of Vicodin would reach from here to the moon and back and three times around the earth. That's what was going on with the pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, we were, as a physician, you know, we were culpable as well in our own way, I, ho I hope innocently. Yeah. But, you know, somebody, somebody comes in you know, from a sports injury, and you're writing, you know, 30 Percocet, for God's sakes. You know, or somebody's getting a tooth pulled. Yeah, yeah, you know, here, here's, here's 30 Perks. And then they sit in the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Like in the movie, mm. right? Like in your movie. They sit there in the... But, wow, so, Tony, well, you, you were going to say... Well, 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 I could go many now. different directions, but... If you look at the deposition that Maura Healy did with Richard Sackler, Richard Sackler was the CEO of Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin and OxyCodone. They're based down in Stamford, Connecticut. He said back in 1997 or 98, he said that when the people get addicted, we'll just make them out to be scoundrels and abusers of the drug. Mm. And he wrote, he wrote that in emails. And when people say, when, when, the, when the doctors ask you if, the, if it's addictive, you say, less than 1%. Because 
because Jeremiah Jick did a, <clears throat> a survey for 10,000 people in 1980, and it went into the American Medical Journal, and he said less than three-tenths of a percent got addicted. Well, that test was only for three days, and those people were all hospitalized. Yeah. little different, you little know. little different. And so, and I don't think the stigma is over yet by no, any it's means. Not. No, it's not. Because now, I think, though, what's changing is we have all these lawsuits, all the publications are coming out, We're everybody's now understanding that this whole epidemic started because, because of too many prescriptions. And people say, oh, it's coming down. Well, in 2018, we wrote 288 million prescriptions for opioids. Yeah. In 2019, we wrote 244 million for opioids. I just got my knee replaced eight weeks ago. They kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Oh, you need to get this. You need to have this prescription filled. You're going to be in pain. Well, pain isn't so bad. You can't get opioids in Germany. You can't get your wisdom teeth out in England and get opioids. It doesn't happen. They give you ibuprofen and ice and send you home. You know, and we brainwashed our doctors, thanks to Richard Sackler. Brainwashed them. Send out sexy women and sexy guys to talk to the doctors give them incentives like write so many prescriptions and get a bonus go to the caribbean and do a speech in front of you and your wife you know those are the kind of things and that's been finally changed and i want to point out president obama did not even mention the epidemic until his very last year of his presidency his last year and the only way that happened is we were on the white house lawn and we sent him five thousand signatures and he finally mentioned it in one of his last saturday radio shows that we had an epidemic in America. Mm -hmm. And that was it. Now, usually an epidemic is spread by a disease, but this epidemic comes in a little bottle from Walgreens, CVS, and Rite Aid. And that's the difference. And it can be stopped if we just don't write so many prescriptions. Mm -hmm. There is a place where it's needed. When somebody's got cancer, severe injuries, severe injuries, not a broken toe. And that's what the problem is. Because the federal government was judging people because so many of the senators and the congressmen were getting so much money from the pharmaceutical companies, they supported all that. And that's the, what we have to turn around is the, the stigma thing is still very bad. Hmm. So it's been politicized, you think? I mean, is that, is that part of what we're saying? Or, or, Absolutely. Or? Right now, we have about five good bills sitting in the Senate and Mitch McConnell won't even let them come to a vote. And these are bipartisan bills to help stop the epidemic. We have a bill that um, the two senators from New Hampshire put in, and, one, and that bill says that if you're an athlete and you're in high school and, and you get an injury and the doctor prescribes an opioid, they're going to have to show you a letter that this is an addictive drug and the parent has to sign off on it. Yeah. That's, uh, that's just the rough estimate and of the in Massachusetts, bill. you know, one of the things that prescribers are being told is, is you're not going to be allowed to, to prescribe opioids and benzos, benzodiazepines like Valium, Xanax, mm. without getting prior authorization. Well, the combination will kill you. The combination Instantly. can kill you. That's yeah. right. And, of course, now we've got fentanyl as well. Um, because remember, folks, you know, once, once a doctor stops prescribing the prescription pain medicine doesn't mean that you're your desire for it goes away right. no. and now you're, you're either buying it on the street and now we're getting all this press stuff so it's not even real perks and that's when it's getting right. even more dangerous because more and more people are going out there and they're using i want people to understand that they're not using to get high 
most people are using to not be sick. Mm. Right. Dope sick is the big thing that they're, they're trying to avoid being dope sick, and that, <sighs> that's the big thing. We had one weekend in the greater Brockton area about two and a half years ago where we had 22 overdoses, and all of them were young men, all between age 22 and 30, and they all got the same heroin batch with yeah. the fentanyl in it. Yeah. And the fentanyl was enough to kill an elephant, yeah. and they all died. And that was on one weekend. Now, here's the thing that, to show you we we're not over the stigma yet. We had like 15 people die from vaping. And the amount of time that they've spent on vaping, we've had people dying in the last three hours. Yeah. And they don't, they don't even talk about it like it's an epidemic. Think about it. Every single day in this country, we have 130 to 140 people die. Well, if you look at that, let's say two airplane crashes, Right, 270 people. Well, we have two airplane crashes every two days. And why aren't we doing something immediately? Trump said it was an emergency. Well, where's the emergency? You know, when, when is somebody going to call out and say, this is an emergency and let's stop it? You know, last year we talked about Triple E. Four people got Triple E and died. Whoopie-doo. Not as bad for those people, but at the same time, four people died every, every five hours in Massachusetts. You know, right. that's you got to be realistic about the numbers. But now there are people who are who are stepping up, and finally saying something. You know, High Point Treatment Center. You know, they they've been doing substance use treatment long before it was sexy to do, and that's that's part of my concern as well. Is that is this going to be just another fad, as, as opposed to people realizing this is real, folks, and we need to address this now? What's the response been like? Um, you've, you've shown it now, if only, and, and other films too. I mean, mm -hmm. this isn't this isn't just a one and done. We, we were we were very honored uh, just a few weeks ago to have Shelby Buchanan and um, Stephen Kennedy Smith on, and some of their folks from those are my friends, from, right? From from in their shoes. Yeah, those are my friends. Which which is also you know an amazing thing. So yeah. so you see, is this your mission now to? Well, yeah. I mean, I I just. Uh, we, in the screening, um, I talk about that day, that day when I met these people and, uh, and the guilt of thinking that I could just walk away, mm -hmm. right? Um, We're talking about back, back in that funeral back, scene. Back in that funeral mm -hmm. scene, back in If Only, back five years ago. Yeah. I mean, I'm a person in, that's been clean and sober for a, a long, long time, right? And, and, and on an individual but basis. But can I just say congratulations? Because that's right. not easy. That's, it's a marathon, not a sprint. And you deserve to, to get some acknowledgement for that. Um, I'm not gonna. Impressive. I'm not going to stop you from acknowledging it. I just... Well, let me acknowledge it, Jim. Well, that's cool. It's all good. I, I just... I, I always feel a little weird for... for um, for, for finally doing what I'm supposed to. But, but, you, but, I, but I just want to point out once more that you're, yeah. you're in recovery, yeah. which is not the same. Some people say they're recovered yeah. or, or I'm recovering. Yeah. So, so these three words, so recovery, can you just real quick, what recovery for you? For, for me, recovery and today, not it, my recovery is contingent on my spiritual condition today. Okay. Okay, so although I have 30 some odd years of experience, it's all about what am I doing today? Yeah. What am I doing today to be of service to others? What am I doing today to have a connection with the God of my understanding? Um, and, and do I have my hand out? Do I have my hand out to the, to, to the next person? And at that point mm -hmm. in my life, you know, I might have had my hand out a little bit, 
you know, to this guy over here because I really like him or to this young lady here because I really like her or I know her or they're from my community or whatever. Um, but at that at that time when so much was going on, I just felt like I got to be able to do something. What can I do, right? And I had no idea that it would be what I ended up doing, right? Because, I, again, my goal was... I'm going to do this, I'm going to make this movie, start this conversation if I can, I give the movie to them, and I'll go back to my job. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt like if these people can get out of bed, get in their car, drive some of them three and four hours in two and a half feet of snow, right, to, to help tell a story and to help people acknowledge that this thing is real and that their family was as important as anybody else's family and and they're never going to have their child be at another Christmas or another Thanksgiving or another anything else uh, if it was important enough for them to do that then it's important enough for me to try to do more mm-hmm. right and I didn't make any commitment that day other than I'm just going to say yes whatever you want of me I'm just going to say yes and then I'm going to figure it out because I'm going to be honest with you and uh, only some of the people in the room will identify with what I have to say. People that listen to might not. Every bit of my fiber wants to say no. I don't want to do this. I don't want to be in. I don't want to be in Marshville, in the cold. I want to be home. I live in Florida. I want to be home, mm-hmm. laying next to my wife, getting ready to go to bed. But I, I, I don't. I'm, I only made the commitment to say yes. And I learned that from other people. That's all. I just watched them do what they do and, th- and watch them say yes, right? I, I had to learn how to do that. And I just said, I'll just say yes and then figure it out. And most of the work is done by somebody else. Most of the work's done by Ashley back here. I say yes and then I go, go ahead and make it happen, Ashley, because I don't know, you know, how to make that happen, you know? So it's a more of a group effort than it looks. But, but you know what, what pops into my head, because I'm a psychiatrist, I can't, I can't help this. How many times had you said yes from the age of eight on? Yes, I'll do this. Yes, I'll try that drug. Yes, I'll try it. And now it's it's a different yes. I mean, there's a mm. different power to this mm. word than there was before. And this is more folks than say, just say no. It's not that yeah. simple yeah. to just say no. Yeah. So that yes now takes on a whole other meaning for you. Than it did before. I mean, what do yeah. I know? I'm just meeting well, you. Well, you know, I've had some, I've had some, some great examples in my life of of people that said yes. I was in, uh, I was in prison in Massachusetts. I, you know, people say, well, their addiction, they lost a weekend, they lost a month, they lost a summer. I lost the 80s. Right. And, and, and let me, can I just jump in? Because yeah. I, I hear this, and don't take, I, I say to people, don't tell. Don't let anybody say, look what you lost. Yeah. You gave it away. Yeah. And you're taking it back. Yeah. So in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the, in the space of yes, uh, I was in MCI Concord and Mother Teresa came to the prison that I was in. Whoa. Right? Oh my gosh. And, and that was her message was her yes, right? Oh it was gosh. just the yes. And, uh. I mean, that, abs- that, that one singular event absolutely changed my life. Not so much at the moment. I was completely moved and blown away by what I was in the presence of and who I was in the presence of 
and uh, and really felt like I was seeing God. But in hindsight, looking back over my life, I know today without a shadow of a doubt, she was sent there specifically for me. Mm-hmm. Right? God, I think God was showing off that day. He was like, "You don't, you're not listening. Mm-hmm. I keep trying to help you and push you in the right direction and pulling you towards me, and you're not coming. So I'm going to show off a little bit. I'm going <laughs> to send my number one assistant <laughs> to that prison, right? And 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 it changed it changed me in a way that no other thing has ever changed me. That's an incredible story. Yeah, it is. Thank you so much for sharing that story. I mean, this is powerful. So, what now? I have no idea. We just, uh, what now? Yes. <laughs> so, th- we got a few things going on. <clears throat> and, and again, I say we like I'm not, not like there's more than one person living in my head. There's a lot of people around me that, uh, that help me to try to, to try to make the most out of this little bit of time that we have to try to make a difference. So um, right now I'm, I don't know, about 80% of the way of writing a book. Hmm. It's done. It's We're going back and forth editing and the publisher has got it. And um, So I just feel like I think my story is a story that people can relate to and I think that um, you know, I'm just hoping to trans late that need for us to say yes mm-hmm. right and to just I mean that's how you are you know you have to have the opportunity to be of service but it starts with saying yes people say you know will you help me do this will you help me do that? I always want to say no you uh, call my wife right now she'll say hey can we go to the park I still say no even though I want to go to the park huh. something inside me just wants to say no right and so, uh, and so it's, uh, it's work for me sometimes to say yes. I have to get the word out before I can think, right? And then I have to figure out how to follow through with it. So I'm writing a book. We just finished another film on addiction, and it's my first. It's a faith-based film mm-hmm. on addiction, so it's a different sort of, it's a different journey for the people that, and the, the family that's involved. And uh, I did both that film and the book I'm doing with uh, Our Sunday Visitor, which is a Catholic publishing company out of, uh, out of uh, Indiana. And um, Cheryl was here, Cheryl Buchanan, and so we have the documentaries out. And we're actually taking another look at the documentary. We have some interest from some folks in Hollywood. Mm. Uh, they have some interest in the documentary, and they're, you know, most people in Hollywood only like their own ideas. So they have some ideas about what it would look like if we cut it another way and maybe mm-hmm. they can find a home for it. So we're excited about that and, you know, we're just trying to show up. There's so great a need for this. We need, we need more treatment centers. We're going to get lots of money from these lawsuits. Like Oklahoma's already got $575 million. But we've got to make sure that we don't make a bridge with that money. We got to make sure it goes into recovery centers somewhere, and we got to pe- people have to be in recovery for it's, it's actually the rest of their life, as Jim said. It's it's every day of the rest of your life, but to really get cleaned out and get your mind going in the right direction, it takes six to eight, six to twelve months, minimum. Right. And then you got to understand that's an everyday process, every day, because I'm as a bereavement facilitator at Hope Floats. I've heard so many times, my son was clean for two years, 
and some event happened and he mm -hmm. went and he got back on that's it and he right. died that day yeah that's the thing that you have that's when a, a tremendous amount of deaths happen after they've been clean for a year or two yeah that's why they say jim said it's a marathon it's the rest of that's your right. life it's a marathon you not have a to think about Absolutely. it you know you know i'm actually a long treatment with with ga gamblers anonymous uh -huh. and since 1978 and I, well I go done. to Las Vegas to work, which I'm going to Saturday. Mm. And, I mean, I can't even look in a casino. If I look in a casino, I actually have an anxiety attack, you know. So yeah. I have to stay away, you know. And it's like the same thing the rest of my life. I can't play a poker game. I can't do anything because I'll go right back into it. And, and now we're looking at Internet addiction and oh. all of these other things that the kids are now... I mean, it's a struggle. It's amazing. A struggle is... Uh, is is really i know you don't mean it that this way but it's such an understatement i agree you know it's like yeah you're right you're home you're, you're right. in your house right. you have parents that love you that care about you that teach you right from wrong right and then they go in their room they don't even go outside they go in their room and pick up this thing right and pointing your cell phone yeah, for those on the radio yeah yep. 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 i mean it's <clears throat> it's like at warp speed yeah right the exact opposite of what the people that love you are telling you that it, the exact opposite information is coming at you constantly yeah. constantly constantly all day long um, I don't know man we're we're uh, we need to communicate with each other right so it's not like I'm not inventing a wheel right mm -hmm. I feel like if we if we're talking to each other we're communicating with each other if kids feel like they can talk to their parents about these difficult topics so important right and if parents feel like they can talk to their kids parents are so many people are so much worry more worried about the fact that if, whether or not their kids like them right mm -hmm. if they're the cool parent mm -hmm. right then you know are they having a real relationship with them and are they right. you know are they doing their job are they right? talking with each other yeah. not just exactly. to each other not just exactly. at each other but yeah. with each other yeah and and for for parents out there this is one of the most important things that i think we can give you as a message is if you want your child to be able to come to you with anything you must not get angry when they come to you with something that's going to freak you out don't get angry that will just shut them down you got to be able to recognize that secrets aren't secrets because of what we've done. Secrets are secrets because we worry, how will someone judge me if they know my secret? Mm. And if your child feels enough trust to share their secret with you, that's where you want to be. That's where you want to be with your kid. Because then you can have that discussion. You can have that relationship. And that, that could be life-saving. You know, when I was a kid, there were and I and I made a lot of bad choices in my life but there were so many different types of organizations around right places for kids to go to be sort of safe right like I, I remember we were involved in a with the Boys and Girls Clubs of America we were involved they had a 3 to 10 p.m. campaign right mm -hmm. it was those are the hours that kids get in trouble mm -hmm. those are the hours when their parents are still at work many parents have to work more than one job right so I think about places like that and people, the kind of people that I know, like uh, my, my buddy Mike Joyce, who's been at the Dorchester Boys and Girls Club for 40 years, right? He dedicated his life, right? And so many kids that were taken by folks and, and shaped and, and 
pushed in the right directions. And, you know, when they, they, they say it takes a village, right? It, I mean, <laughs> nowadays, you can't... When I was a kid, my neighbors all had permission to put their foot in my backside <laughs> if I did something wrong, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Now, you can't do that. You can't mm -hmm. even speak to another another person's kid. The, the, you know, I mean, it's, a, it's the end of the world, yeah. right? So uh, I feel like there's so many different places out there that are underutilized, right? Like the Boys and Girls Clubs and in uh, different organizations, after-school programs, um, mentor programs, churches, synagogues. I mean, we need, I, I feel like we need so much more of a, of a contribution to this conversation from our faith leaders too. I don't think, mm. I don't think we're getting it. And I think to me, it's critical. Um, hmm. It really is. So I know there's so much more to be done. I think. Uh, I mean, that's a whole nother discussion yeah. is, is why you think we're not getting that message from the faith leaders. I, I don't know, man. I, I can't speak to every faith. I can speak to my own faith. And that's why I went out and made my first faith-based movie mm -hmm. because I really, I really felt like there weren't saying anything. There wasn't like, I didn't feel like they were, they weren't talking about it in church on Sunday. I wasn't hearing it. I wasn't hearing the message. Yeah. I hear it now. I hear it now. I hear more now in different parts of, I go to Catholic mass I, in different parts of the mass. Now I'll hear the mentions of addiction and brokenness and things of that nature. Right. Um, but I didn't through this whole epidemic, I wasn't hearing it unless I wasn't listening. That's always possible. Mm. Right. But I wasn't hearing it. And so I felt like I was nudging people from my own faith to do more. What, what about this idea of brokenness? Because, you know, one of the things that we talk about here is called the I am approach, where, yeah. where nothing's broken, where we're all doing the best yeah. we can at every moment with the potential to change. And, and we just need to figure out why we do what we do, to wonder instead of worry. Mm. Influenced by your home, the social domain, which is the rest of the world, the biological domain of your brain and body, and something we call the I see. How mm -hmm. do I see myself? How do I think other people see me? And these four domains interconnect. Because they interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. Mm -hmm. You don't need to change everything. So I'm going to ask you, for our listening audience, what small change do you suggest they could make so they don't go down this path? What small change are you suggesting they could make? And then, Tony, we'll, you know, we'll pull that over to you, too. Well, again, I, I, we've, we've talked a lot about communication mm -hmm. here today, right? And that's sort of, that's my lane in doing the work that I do, is trying, to, is trying to start a conversation, right? If two sides can have this one thing in the middle that start, helps them to facilitate that conversation. Have you ever been had that experience? Have you ever been around? Has anyone ever offered you anything? Mm. You know, you know, you can come and talk to me, right? What did you think about the way that parent handled that situation? And what did you think about the mom that was like, no way, no how, no chance, right? right? My home is perfect, right. which there is no such thing. Just so, so people understand, in, in the movie, it was wonderful yeah. to contrast these, these two parents you know, and and the denial in one, and yeah. and and the desperation in the other, and the and the guilt and the shame and the blame. Yeah. So the small changes. Yeah. So I and I, and I'll say this: I don't think either parent in the film loved their children any less. Right. Right. right? Absolutely. They were just the parent that was in denial is just in denial. She's just fooled by the fact that 
it couldn't it, her child had everything they could ever want right right and i'm sorry but I'm, I'm not sure that's how it works yeah right so i feel like if we can create an environment where we can have a conversation and people and parents can stop being afraid of <laughs> of their kids right this it, it it's really it's really mind-boggling to me and i guess you know i felt I think I fell into wanting to be popular with my kids too, right? Because I think back about my own childhood and how I didn't get along with my dad and how I would never be like that or never be like him. And so I'm, I think sometimes I went overboard to make sure that my kids liked me, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and I think some, I made some mistakes along the way, you know, and I've learned from them. So I want to get Tony, can any of you just real brief because then I'm going to come back to Jim. What small change can you recommend for our listening well, audience? Well, I'd like to um, tell you that I speak to a lot of the kids who get sectioned and they go to the county prison and they're locked up but they're not criminals. And I always like to tell them it's time now to reflect. You're going to be here for 30 or 60 days. Mm -hmm. And this is the big thing is everybody needs to take a time out once in a while and, and then ask yourself, who am I? Why am I here? Mm -hmm. And what is my purpose? And if they ask those questions to yourself every day, I think you'll find that you'll be able to deal with life a little bit better. And real quickly, I, I always ask the guys in the section, how many people did it take to get you here? And they tell me two. And how about them, four? And it goes to eight, then yeah. to 16. And I say, you know, you go back six, seven generations. You know how fortunate you are to be alive? It took 700 and something people for you to be born. Yeah, and you true. think those people would be proud of you now? Yeah. You're a representation of 750 different forms of DNA. Yeah. And, now and then I teach them to get out in the yard and do some meditative walks. And, and uh, thank Tony and, and Jim back. So the other rule of the I am, everyone's got an I am. Everyone's interested in what you think about them, which means you control no one, you influence everyone. What kind of influence are you hoping to be? What kind of influence am I hoping to be? Hmm. Well, um, I mean, first I want to I want to influence the people closest to me, right? The, my family, my children, right? I want to I want them to understand that a life of service is a great life. Mm -hmm. It really is. That it ain't all about stuff, right? So I want to influence them, and then uh, in terms of bigger than that, I don't know if I can think that big. You know, I really can't. I just want to, I, I guess I want them, I want everybody I come in contact with to get that same message, right? That living a life of service is, is a good thing, yeah. you know? You control no one, you influence everyone. You get to choose the kind of influence you want to be, folks. I just want to thank you guys for coming in. Jim Wahlberg and, and all the work you're doing for everyone. And, and Tony, thanks so much for being here. You're Ashley, welcome. Couldn't do without you. Everybody, thanks so much. We'll be back next week with the Dr. Joe Show. Brush with madness. Is it sadness? It's just a show.